Hello, everyone. Um, welcome, welcome to a Friday fireside chat. Uh, I'm Rita McGrath. You probably knew that. Uh, and my guest this week is Keith Ferrazzi, the uh, chair of a company called Ferrazzi Greenlight, which helps organizations upgrade their teamwork and interpersonal capabilities. Did I get that right, Keith? Well, close enough, but in the next hour, we'll figure it all out. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Keith, among many other things, is a best-selling author, uh, multiple New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, uh, very famous for his breakthrough book, which was Never Eat Alone. But I actually met Keith years ago when we were both members of the design team for the Microsoft CEO Summit. And uh, they dubbed us the wise people. And what we would do is spend pretty much a whole year planning out this two to three day uh, extravaganza for the CEOs of Microsoft's 500 top customers. <laughs> and that's how we got to know each other. And we've kind of kept in touch since. So Keith has a new book out called Competing in the New World of Work, uh, which we'll be talking about as well as his other books uh, on networking, how you navigate at work, how you get uh, stuff done. So welcome, Keith. Rita, great. Great to see you. I'm so proud of all of your success and been watching such an extraordinary thought leader career for so many years. Well, thank you. That's very kind. And, and likewise. <laughs> so so why don't you start off by, for people that don't know you, um, maybe just give us like, who's Keith, where he came from, sure. what, where you're Yeah, no, I think the backstory is kind of important because my mission <clears throat> in life when I was a 10-year-old was to grow up and save American manufacturing. <laughs> And that was because my father, um, like many others in southwestern Pennsylvania, was the victim of the crush of the steel industry in the 70s. And it was very interesting to me what I discovered over the years. And I, I thought I was going to be in politics back then. I said, I'm going to go up, grow up, I'm going to be governor of Pennsylvania. I'm going to fix Pennsylvania manufacturing. Then I'm going to go to uh, uh, become president of the United States and fix American manufacturing because no family should should be as destitute as we were um, with the rug pulled out from underneath us economically as it was. So that was really the commitment. It was interesting as I went along in my career, I did get involved in politics early on, and I found out that that was not going to be the path where I felt I could make the biggest difference in this kind of impact relative to, uh, to families and jobs. Um, and I ultimately found my way to philosophies of business that were created um, around manufacturing, around total quality management, around the, the how to gain worker empowerment inside of the workforce, particularly in manufacturing, to elevate productivity. Now, um, I went and worked. I was the only person out of Yale that, uh, that went into manufacturing down at the plant floor, just like I said I would. Um, and I studied total quality management and the works of Deming and Duran and others who, interestingly enough, so interesting that when I was growing up, the crush of the steel industry was blamed on cheap foreign imports, um, particularly of Japan, Japan steel. But what was very interesting is what I found over the years is that Japan adopted philosophies that made them better, better quality and less expensive that we in the United States did not. And they actually adopted the gurus of the United States and, and did it better than us. Um, and it made me awaken to a couple of things. It made me awaken to how powerful and important intellectual property is and, and, and recognizing that business, um, philosophies, business theories in practice make a difference. 
And that's when I started gearing myself in that direction. Um, the second thing that awakened me to is that back in the day of the steel industry in Pittsburgh, nobody ever asked my father what he thought needed to happen for the plant that he was in working in. And I realized the power of peer-to-peer -peer support inside of organizations. Now, ultimately, I had some real jobs along the way. Um, I, was, I went to Deloitte because I wanted to, uh, to get some broader exposure to these ideas and theories of business. Um, I ultimately became the chief marketing officer of Deloitte, but I was leading their growth practice prior to that. Well, before you leave Deloitte, tell, tell, tell our, our guests the condition that you made before accepting the job. Mm, great one. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> there's two stories about Deloitte, Deloitte that would be important for anybody here to hear. Um, one story I tell in my book, Leading Without Authority, and it was me as a 20-some-year-old intern who heard the CEO on stage talk about someday Deloitte will be at par with McKinsey and, and Accenture. Back then it was called Anderson Consulting. Um, and I sat there and I listened, well, we're, we're pretty low. <laughs> I was a summer intern. The reason I went there is because they had a great manufacturing practice and I moved to Cleveland to work in the manufacturing practice uh, during my first and second year of Harvard Business School. And I sat there and listened to the CEO, which anybody listening, unless you are the CEO, um, have been in a position where we've heard the rhetoric of a leader and we've sat there. And the question is, what did you do with that? Well, what I did with it is activate it. I've always been an activator. Um, and my activation was, well, we're not there. We're, we're the lowest of the big eight at the time. Let me go do a study. Look, I'm a kid. I'm a 20-some-year-old kid at Harvard. And so I called my professor, Len Schlesinger, who I just touched base with yesterday. And I said, Len, I want to write a white paper on the um, future of professional services marketing. And he said, great, we'll use it as a contributor. And without, without, you don't have to take the, the, the test for your, uh, your, your senior thing. You, you can just do that white paper, which is great. I hate tests. And, um, and, I, and I went around and I interviewed the chief marketing officer of McKinsey. I interviewed the chief marketing officer of, of, of Accenture, told them all I was working at Deloitte, told them all the story. They didn't care. I was a kid. But I took that bundle of research and I sent it back to all of them. In a sense, I did my own little Gartner research study. Um, but then I sent it to the CEO of, of Deloitte. And he was blown away. Nobody had ever taken that kind of a proactive action. His own marketing leads hadn't done that. His own partners hadn't done that. And the next thing you know, he's calling me down to dinner in New York. And I'm sitting there with him and he said, kid, we want you to come here at the firm. We really do. This is, I think you can make a big difference here. So I'm in my early 20s and I accepted the offer that night under one condition that for the remainder of time that I'm at Deloitte, he give me at least one or two of those dinners between the two of us. What I realized was the proximity to power, proximity to influence, and then moving that from just awareness to relationship to where to the point where I, I knew that if I had a one dinner a year that I could be on that man's radar in a way that you know that that a lunch or a coffee or something wouldn't have brought me right and it, it actually came to fruition ultimately um, I was the youngest partner ever elected at Deloitte and I was the chief marketing officer crazy I was chief marketing officer of the global company before I was 30. Um, so that's a little, and then I went over to Starwood Hotels when we were, when Barry Stern was just starting the Starwood Hotels brand. Then I left us to, to do what I'm doing now, which really is my passion for Aussie Greenlight, which is 
the elevation of humans and human capital in the workplace. But our arbitration is very much about the team. What I've learned over 20 years of work is that you can transform everything about your company if you transform how teams interrelate and operate. And we can go into that and wonk out on that and have a lot of fun read on that because I don't think, and other than Lencioni 20 years ago, I don't think there's been enough work done on the on the element of the team. And that's what we're publishing on. That's what we're studying. Our We have a research institute. So even though those early, that little article I wrote for, for, uh, uh, for, for the CEO of Deloitte um, got me bit by the bug of research. So we've been doing research ever since. Not like your academic research. Well, I don't know. It's, it's good. It's, our research is good research. We just don't get credit for it because I don't have an academic title like you do, but that's okay. Well, you actually use real words, right? I mean, in our, in our world, we use we use phrases like um, time compression diseconomies. <laughs> you know, well, you, you're a great translator, though. One of the things I love about your work is that it's so rigorous and such integrity, but you beautifully translate it for all of us. So I, I, that's where I've always tipped my hat to you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, that's part of what I try to do. Like, I just... I can't think in purely theoretical terms. I mean, to me, it has to connect to an example or a story or an illustration or something um, to make it actionable for, for people. Um, so let's go back to, um, I think, was your first book, Never Eat Alone? Is that yeah, so, so basically that crazy career, right, which was very precocious, um, got the attention of Inc. Magazine. And they, um, this young man named Tal Raz reached out to me and wanted to write an article about um, why people have disproportionate success over others. And I thought about it. And again, another great tip to your listeners, you know, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, I want to interview you. You could just do that and then pass on, right? But what I did is I said, you know, I'm going to take the time for this young man and I'm going to come up with the 10 tips that I think were instrumental to my success. And that those 10 tips ended up being, instead of him interviewing me for an article, he ended up making the article about me. And it ended up being a massive feature piece. It was one of the most, pop, most popular pieces and ultimately most uh, viral pieces that they have ever had at Inc. Magazine. And it was called 10 Tips of a Master Networker. And I had not called myself a networker. I actually wouldn't have used those words. I found that word repugnant. Back in those days, the word networking was a little dirty. It was about, it was usury. And I think one of the things that I've done in my life, in my career, is I've transformed that word a bit. Because um, my book, which uh, I ultimately <clears throat> um, resisted the word networking, uh, because what happened was when the, when the article came out, I was like, oh, I hate this positioning. And my revenge was hiring the young man who wrote the article to help me write my book. And um, we wrote the book and it became a New York Times bestseller. And it was sort of no looking back from there. But what I learned and the core of that and the core of all my work today is that um, to be successful in relationships, um, there are two fundamental attributes of all great relationships, whether they're business, whether they're personal. <clears throat> Um, and that is real intimacy, real and to the point of vulnerability. I love Brene Brown's work. Um, Never Eat Alone was, was proselytizing vulnerability uh, long before that work was published. Um, 
And again, not a competition, but it's just like I've always believed very strongly in the importance of, of vulnerability and relationships. I, I, the way I look at it is um, empathy is the bridge to a beautiful relationship. But the golden key is vulnerability to open empathy. And that opening of that gate to empathy uh, is that vulnerable sharing. Um, one of the reasons why it was, and it was wise on your part to start a, a, a dialogue with me on the personal side, right? Because it breeds for your audience a sense of empathy with the person sitting here. So ideas become more absorptive. Mm -hmm. um, people lean in, they open themselves. I call the word I created was not, I didn't create it, but it was there. It's called porosity. How do you open people to each other? And then the issue is that people are busy and, it, and intimacy can seldom be gained if another person who's very busy doesn't see the value in the relationship. So really leading with generosity was the earmark of Never Eat Alone. How do you engineer a network with yourself leading with generosity to others? Mm -hmm. Now, it then follows on in my second book, Who's Got Your Back, to talk about how relationships become incredibly productive. And we recognize that the most productive relationships are, are relationships that have high degrees of candor, truth-telling that's difficult, right? Which most organizations do not have good transparency. They do not have good candor. Our work shows that on an average of zero to five, the average team is 2.4 in their ability to have candor with each other. Mm. It's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. um, but then in addition to candor, you need butt-kicking accountability. Again, our work on teams shifts the accountability there's an old mindset of accountability is I'm accountable to a number. I'm accountable to my boss. So you're accountable up. But we move that down and say we're accountable to each other. Massive shift. You can get a team crossing the finish line together, owning each other's success, responsible for each other's failure, game changing. And that's what we coach to. And then <clears throat> that's what we wrote about in Leading Without Authority. How do you lead your peers? That was the intention of that book. How do you actually lead your peers when you're trying to get stuff done? Um, yeah. And then the last one, which uh, uh, is what we're going to be talking about today, is 2,000. Moment, competing in the new world of work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Two, at the peak of the pandemic, I saw this as an inflection point. So I said to my research institute, I said, listen, I'm not traveling anymore. I'm sitting here, right here on my butt. Um, how, do we, how do we perform in a way? that will really add to our research. And so we decided to do a research study, which ended up being 2000 individuals um, on how do we crawl out of the pandemic and not go back to work, but go forward to work. And though the wisdom of those 2000 individuals is in this book, Competing in the New World of Work. And it was Harvard's top pick coming out of the pandemic. So really proud of that. Good for you. So, um, yeah, so before we go to that book, which I do want to get to, um, just some of the ideas that I think were way ahead of their time, um, especially this notion of leading without authority, is we're starting to hear a lot more conversation in the, the lean movement and the, what some people call, well, Ram Sharan and I are writing the piece for HBR. About, oh, good for you. Permissionless organizations, um, which which I think will be kind Can of. Can you give me the thumbnail summary of what a permissionless organization is? Yeah. So um, what what permissionlessness means is that you've created a sufficient um, framework in terms of clarity of objectives, 
uh, clarity about goals. What's the greater context? How do you how do you know what problems you're trying to address? But then the actual solutions are created by small intact teams. Um, some people call them single threaded, where you know they're really intensely focused on a narrow range of things for a chunk of time. Um, and the work, instead of being done in this, I know you've written about this too, instead of this waterfall where like maybe it starts off in engineering and then it goes to you know design and then maybe marketing gets involved and you get all the way to the end and then finance says this isn't going to pay for itself and the whole thing ends up being a disaster. You know, instead of that, I'm you have a, on a few smaller right now. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of that, you have smaller chunks of work, but they're being done in parallel. So the end result is you're able to move much more quickly. And the notion of permissionlessness is also that because we have digital technologies now, that a lot of what managers used to do, you know, the old pot score, bright planning, organizing, controlling, blah, 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 that stuff can actually be self-architected by teams using technology. So a great example of this would be at Salesforce. They have this bizarre acronym called V2 Mom. <laughs> and it's well, You know where that came from? That came from Cisco. It did it really? I didn't yeah, know that. John Chambers, um, oh. vision, blah, blah, blah. And again, cascading alignment throughout an organization. Oh, I did not know um, that came from Cisco. Yeah. Oh, Chambers is brilliant. I mean, he's such an interesting leader. Um, anyway, so it's it's vision, it's values, it's um, what what's the method, what obstacles do you have to overcome? And then wh what, what are your metrics? How will you know if you succeeded? And what I think is interesting about Salesforce is, and I don't know what they do at Cisco, but at Salesforce, I'm told- They abandoned it at Cisco, by the way. I don't think Chuck uses it anymore, but I just, this was, I just wanted to give you that, that yeah, reference. I didn't know that, that's great. Yeah. Um, but anyway, apparently what happens is the senior team kind of puts theirs together sort of at the top of the house. And then everybody else in the company, I imagine, has creates theirs. But what I find is so interesting is they actually embed it in their software. So like if I want to know what yours is, uh, I can just look. <laughs> I mean, that level of transparency you don't see very often. I am also told now I do not know this firsthand, but I'm told that it's considered bad form to ask somebody to perform a task that is not part of their V2 mom. <laughs> which I think getting back to this notion of peer accountability, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, you know, one of the things that uh, I'd like to um, offer to your audience and to yourself would be fantastic. Um, during the pandemic, one of my dear friends passed away. Uh, his name was Tony Shea. And oh, he was founder of Zappos. And it was very tragic, his death. And it was unfortunately very publicized. Um, which was very difficult for the family and so many others. But that said, Tony was a brilliant, I, I consider Tony, to be honest with you, in the ilk of some of the great business thinkers in, 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 that we've had in history. And, but what I loved about what Tony did is he activated it at a company, right? Which so few of us had the ability to do at scale other than as a consultant, um, but he activated it in his company. He moved from what we all know him for, which is a, you know sort of extraordinary engagement he moved to something called holacracy, self-managed teams. Mm -hmm. Now it's interesting, the permissionless organization that you're talking about has a whiff of mm -hmm. this idea of self-management. Um, we are now hosting in my foundation and the family foundation of Tony Shea, we're now hosting annually a colloquium of business thinkers, often chief talent officers, uh, heads of HR, business leaders, unicorn CEOs, who are interested in cracking the code of the next generation of the human capital model. Ooh. And we're doing it on September 3rd, September 15th and 16th in Vegas. 
I don't know when this airs. Um, will this air prior to that? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, it'll be up. It'll be well. It's live now, um, and it'll be up on YouTube probably mid middle of next week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If anybody wants to um, participate in this, um, the 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 cost of participation is just an application. It's free. Um, uh, everybody pays their own hotel and and air area. But um, we're spending the night of the 15th, a very intimate dinner with this audience of people who really want to to re-engineer the future of human capital in the workplace, the industrial era model that you're rebelling against with your new book, right, is no longer valid. But yet we need to, this is a massive effort to shift this. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this group is interested in doing. And on the following day, on the 16th, there'll be like a two-hour slot, which will be streamed to the world, but there's going to be about six hours of us really digging in on these ideas. And we're doing one section around self-management. And Rita, I don't know what your schedule is, but it would be an honor to have you come out. Um, And it's going to be a great group. Um, But anybody listening, if you're interested, you can go to the Tony Shea Award, thetonysheaaward.com. And I suspect there's some info that you can send an email to us and, and say you'd like to come. But what we're looking for are people who are really devoting their lives to these ideas of transforming human capital, whether you're um, uh, ideally a practitioner who's trying to really do it in in the workplace. There's a few of us who are consultants and coaches who are coming, um, but we're looking for people. And by the way, you should apply for the award. If you've got, and Rita, I would love to hear from you, if you've got some examples of companies that you think are doing innovative practices we're going to be announcing the winners. We Last year, we announced the winners at TED. And the winner gets a seat at TED um, to walk in Tony's shoes like he did. And this year, we're doing it with Reed Hoffman's event, Masters of Scale in New York. I mean, in San Francisco. In October, we're announcing the winner. So right now, there's a window. If anybody would like to apply, all, all we're looking for is a company that is doing something clever in the reimagining uh, of the workforce. And if there's any companies, small companies or any companies, Rita, that you think are interesting, mm-hmm. um, let me know, you know, here or afterward. And I'd love to make sure that they get an application. So anyway, all of that said, you know, we're on the same path, which is why, why I dove into this issue of permissionless organizations. If I were to segue to that, to competing in the new world of work and what we found is what we found in, is that the model we were, t- we're talking about is... Um, Radical adaptability. How do you create an organization that's radically adaptable? Mm-hmm. And the four essence of a radically adaptable leader, a radically adaptable organization, uh, number one is agile to what you're talking about. How do you how do you lead an organization that's agile? And I love the, the mechanism by which you're relating to that around this permissionless set of teams, et cetera. So all of that as a part of that. Beautiful. Second is um, inclusive. And when I say inclusive, I don't mean DNI, although I do. What I mean is making sure that all the voices are heard. It's so interesting that during the pandemic, we saw people participate in decision-making and ideation that were never able to participate before because of hybrid work. Now, I had an opportunity. I was at that, I was at a, a party not long ago with Elon Musk and um, it was, it was that one that was often he, he tweeted about, but Sergey and all these other people. Um, and, you know, what I had to lean into was this question of 
why are we so wedded to five days? We're, we're fighting this policy question. Five days, three days, two days. I don't give a shit. I just don't. <laughs> what I care about is that we change the way we work. And you can work, you know, I, I think of collaboration in a stack. You work uh, asynchronously without, this is the tool-based collaboration you're talking about. We work remotely like this on a form of video. We work hybrid, which is a mixed mode. And then we work physical. And each one should have their own essence. And that's what we point out in the book. How do you, how do you work on the collaborative stack? And how, what are the tools we use? Unilever crowdsourced their 2021 business plan among their top 300 leaders. In the past, the executive team would come up with the budgets and then they would hand them down to the local leaders which would have to absorb them. But now with, with, with remote work, with breakout rooms and opening Google Docs, we were able to crowdsource growth plans from the bottom up. And, I can, and the book delineates a ton of opportunities where we can be much more inclusive, much more innovative, bold, collaborative in our, in our, in our efforts. So number one was agile. Number two is inclusive. Number three um, was um, uh, resilience. In that what we learned at the peak of the pandemic is that, that employees' energy is precious. We saw it stressed to its breaking point at the peak of the pandemic. Um, and we awakened to the power and the importance of owning a team's resilience. And we, we saw so many organizations very, very much leaning in and, and re-engineering how to create a resilient how to create a resilient team. Mm -hmm. um, and that's delineated in the book as well. Mm -hmm. um, let me pause for a second. I've been going on for a long time. Before we drop the last one, I want to hear, how are your, what are your reactions to this in terms of what you saw and how that parallels to your observations in, in your work? Oh, it, it's very much in sync. I, I, you know, what happened was we had a, a paradigm that got broken, right? Um, and what I think astonished a lot of the leaders I talked to is just how well it worked. You know, and and of course now that we're kind of on the brink of maybe being able to go back back to work, um, people have found um, great joy in. Everybody talks about flexibility, but I honestly don't think it's flexibility. I think it's autonomy, and I think it's the ability to to you know control your work, to have a voice, to connect with others who are similarly autonomous, and we don't want to give that up and go back to being cogs in a machine. That's a beautiful insight. That's a beautiful insight. <laughs> and by the way, you should use that in your subtitle for the book. <laughs> you really should, because you, you know, permissionless is very organizational, mm -hmm. but autonomy is so beautifully personal. Mm -hmm. It is. And I and the realization that the two of those two things are working together in such synchronicity. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, the fourth area that we we found during the pandemic that was crucial was foresight, looking around corners. Mm -hmm. Um, love that. <laughs> what's that? I love that. That's a, a, a concept after my own heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, what what happened was we practiced radical foresight during the pandemic. Every day we'd wake up and said, what the shit did we get hit with today? Mm -hmm. Right. And it was always something different. And we became so agile mm -hmm. around pivots of diagnostic foresight. Mm -hmm. It was happening constantly. You know, I was saying that whether you liked it or not, you were working on one week sprints during the pandemic. Exactly. You know, oh, it's exactly. like, wake up. It's like, what the heck are we going to do? Okay, let's go do it this week. <laughs> then we use the weekend to do our scrums and our agile turnarounds and pivots. And then we'd sprint for another week. 
<laughs> I was coaching the Delta Airlines team as we went into the pandemic and we went to daily sprints. It was funny because Delta was looking under the leadership of a wonderful chief operating officer named Gil West, um, who was the chief operating officer, the, the CEO. Gil was trying to work with his team to reinvent the future of the travel industry. And so we were doing that on these quarterly agile sprints, right? Beautiful agile sprints where we were, we had six different critical hills we were taking. We were stress testing them, doing the standups. It was just beautiful process. Now all of a sudden the pandemic hits. Well, that same philosophy of agile, right? Quarterly reinvention turned into a daily process, but they had already had the muscles exercised. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's what was powerful. They were able to exercise the agile muscles. Most of the leaders listening to this call probably are not using agile at their executive team level. They are, they are, they're doing basically, a, you know, annual plans, these, these cascading goals. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Rita, it's interesting when an organization is is mainlining and wedded to the traditional waterfall, the traditional uh, cascading processes. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, how do we they begin to change? Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is we do it project based. Yes. So what I always ask the executive is, give me your most important project that is critical to the future of the company. Make sure that there's a progressive leader leading that project that is open to new ways of working. Let's pilot there. Mm -hmm. Let's pilot this radical adaptability. Let's pilot permissionless. And let's pilot it there because it has tentacles into the organization. If you can show it having disproportionate success, right? right? And that way you're not asking, the, the analogy I often use is like, there's, there's, a, there's a major uh, battleship going through the waters. Um, maybe it's an aircraft carrier in the case of a place like General Motors. And, and the captain's up there and all of a sudden there's this little dinghy down there screaming, you should, you should sink this ship and come over and behave like we're behaving. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, and the, and the captain of a, of an aircraft carrier can't stop that. Right. But this little thing down there has to earn more and more credibility, you know, become bigger and bigger, like a frigate. I don't know. I'm not a naval expert, but become <laughs> bigger and bigger until yes, we can move the people from there to here, move the strategy from there to here. And yes, sink the old ship. Mm -hmm. But you've got to keep that sustaining uh, effort. Yeah. Um, people get very intimidated. They think they've got to blow up everything. But you try to, you would fail. Just, well, that's just... a mistake. Yeah. I mean, I see that in innovation all the time, right? We have, um, this is really important. So we're going to put $200 million and 55 people and God knows what. And we don't even know what we're doing yet, right? So I wanted to call out a couple of things that I found particularly uh, interesting in, in the book. Um, and the first one was the analogy of Burning Man and this notion of shared communal predicaments. And I, I, I thought that was such an interesting way of looking at it. Well, it's that... good timing because <laughs> all of us who are burners are getting prepared right now to go uh -huh. out playa in a few weeks. Um, so, you know, it was interesting. So we started this research in 2020. And as September rolled around, Burning Man was upon us. And many of us who were burners 
reflected. By the way, many people may not know what Burning Man is here, so then maybe we should tell them. Burning Man, <laughs> Burning Man is a festival of technology, a festival of of art, a festival of of music, um, and it's it's it was a it was a it was a an experiment um, decades ago that was started by a gentleman who thought, what would society be like? Could we create a small ecosystem of a society that had no rules? And he created this and it was a weekend event and it had no rules and it presumptively, one would think of it as anarchy. Um, and people showed up, you know, looking and dressed in costumes, everybody, everything's art. What you wear is art, what you drive is art. Everything is art. And people showed up dressed in costumes and, and you would think that it would be Mad Max, right? It looks like that. And it's on, on this desert, desolate, hot as hell. I mean, you know, massive heat at, during the day and massive cold at night. And you're like, what in the world with all of those uh, volatile constraints, what would be created? And what ended up being created was a beautiful societal ecosystem of generosity and, and shared support. In order to survive, the group ultimately as human species came together as a tribe. And the tribe had rules, which is um, in, 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 in terms of a barter economy. And people ignored what, how much money you had. And it went to, what are you contributing? And it was a generosity-based society. And, and people came together and collaborated as needed um, in beautiful ways. Things would, uh, miraculous things would appear. Miraculous art exhibits, miraculous um, experiences would appear as gifts to each other and co-creations. And so what I, what I, when we were at the peak of the pandemic and, I, and all the volatility and all the destruction, and I was, I was reflecting on, wow, what if coming out of this pandemic, we have we emerge from all of this hostility of environment? What if something emerged that's even better? And what would that look like? And that was the reflection that we had. That it was it was when humans are stressed to their breaking point, we believe they actually step into their greatness. And so many of the companies we talked to said, you know what, we are at our best in crisis. I've now, heard that so much. I've heard yeah, that so what much. What we wanted to do is to say, okay, but why wait until crisis to be at our best? How do we take that methodology of being great in, a, great in crisis? And now, mind you, when we do it, we tend to do it with, with, without much resilience. We do it, well, I shouldn't say it. We do it with great resilience but not sustainability. We don't do it in an elegant fashion. It extends extraordinary energy. It's right? like brute force. Yep, absolutely. Brute force, flight, fight. You know, it's it's all of that's coming, you know, the adrenaline. And, but the question is, okay, so, but what if we took the methodology, what was created, right? Foresight, agility, inclusion, resilience. What if we could sustain that and create that as a, as a methodology for leadership? And that's what we documented in the book. Yeah. yeah, I love that. You also talk about a concept called co-elevation, 
which you kind of coined that term. Um, but this this idea of, of reconstructing, and you talk about barn raising as a metaphor, which I thought was interesting. Oh, you asked me to comment on the barn, on the barn raising. Um, again, it's, you know, what I was saying before, which is the ability in, you know, in the pioneer days, the community came together, right? And um, when, and I would imagine, I'd love to hear more about how in your team-based transformational work, how do they, how do they create agile pivots? How does a group diagnose a need and then reorganize? without central control, mm -hmm. right? Because if you look at most traditional systems, there's central control. Mm -hmm. And and what we find in, in, in these hostile environments, whether it's the pioneer days or burning man, there's not central control. There's a recognition of need and then a movement of individuals to serve mm -hmm. around a need. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things I would look at, if you'd look at the V2 moms, Right. Um, they're a very they're a rather rigid structure to some extent. So one of the questions I would ask of a V2 mom is how does when you said if a peer comes and asks you to do something that's not in your V2 mom, it's frowned upon. Well, what if that thing is brilliant? What if that thing is recognizing an impending disruption? Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, what is the system? For, for constant agility and learning in the process. Um, well, my, my understanding from uh, Tiffany Bova, who I was speaking to about this, is that- She's awesome. Isn't she? <laughs> She's amazing. Is that th th there is flexibility. I think the, the goal of that structure is actually to replace and or make unnecessary traditional hierarchical roles. I think that's what it is. It's not so much to introduce rigidity as it is to, create alignment and clarity. Yeah. And so anyway, I just point that out because that's what I think most people are challenged with. And on the barn raising, the point again is collectivism mm -hmm. and, you know, the, everybody coming together to serve the collective, which could, in fact, I mean, imagine if there's a barn being raised, um, it would disrupt somebody else's crops. But what, what allows an individual to make that individual autonomous decision of pivoting their work for a moment to go into something else and then instead is just as well how do we how do we leverage the wisdom of the crowd to determine where those pivots should be made mm -hmm. because one could argue if you're looking at a central control they have got a plan that's set and we don't deviate because we don't want to allow a charismatic individual to get the organization off the mark Right. So these are the tugs and, and this is what we're going to be talking about on Tony Day. Um, nice. How do we how do we handle that interdependent uh, tug, that stress? Um, well, just this just this past week, I was hanging out with Jeff Pepper uh, while I was out in uh, California, uh, who said to say hello, by the way. Um, but, you know, his work, it's very interesting because there's this real tension. Right. I mean, and Jeff's work on power. Basically says, hey, there's rules of power. There's how you get it. Networking, of course, is one of the essentials. He calls it networking relentlessly. And he uses you as an example. Um, not you mean Jeffrey Pfeffer? Sorry? Jeffrey Pfeffer? Jeffrey Pfeffer, uh-huh. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but one of the things he points out is that networking. I mean, a lot of people think of it as very instrumental, right? That, you know, oh, I'm networking to get ahead. Um, but he talks about you as talking about building networks in a spirit of generosity, you know, leading with that. And uh, in, in one of your books, I forget which one, but you talk about build the network before you need it. Exactly. Um, that was you know, never eat alone. Yeah. yeah. That was yeah. one of the great. So so it's interesting. Um, the network community, that's one of the other things we're going to be doing at this, uh, at Tony Day inviting members of the network community. I, you know, I think a lot of people look at Rob Cross's work as so formative in that space, but there's a lot of folks, uh, of course, who believe in it. What, what's interesting about the network community, which has been around for a long time, where they have analyzed networks to identify information flows, power, et cetera. But what I tried to do when I wrote, Never Either, uh, when I wrote Leading Without Authority is to write a manual for how do you work in networks? <clears throat> because the assumption when I started the research of leading without authority eight years ago was that we had to give leaders a different way of thinking about leading in a network because too many leaders were stressing their time trying to gain authority and control in order to lead in the network. So here you are, you've got a new initiative and the marketing organization uh, only controls a 20% of it but the marketing organization has a vision for an interdependent change in the organization. So what does the marketing organization do? They lobby for more power. They lobby for this part of sales to be in marketing. They lobby for, for and, and there's so much time spent. And yet, and, and, and that, by the way, and that's damn it, why we have annual change. You know, every three years we have a change in org structure. I don't care. Because every three years we or, reorganize because we're realizing work doesn't happen the way our org charts look, and then we reorganize. And then three years, we're like, work doesn't happen the way our org chart looks. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And we reorganize and then work does. I mean, it's like, damn. I mean, oh, I have, I, have a, I have a theory about that, which is that's how we learn, right? So we organize around functionality and we go way down that rabbit hole and we realize, hang on, we've left out markets. So then we reorganize around markets. We go way down a rabbit hole there and then we wait, wait, wait. We, it's we, nauseous. Not captured. It's nauseous. Yet. <laughs> we have such short memories. And, and the reality is one of these days, one of these days, um, I believe what will happen is we will have systems that manage a very different way of working mm -hmm. around what you're talking about, permissionless teams, et cetera, because we don't work in org charts. And yet my tip my hat to the great organizations that have built systems around human capital, not naming their names. Um, but I'm going to say that most of them aren't architected on loose networks. They're architected on hierarchy because your boss gives you your performance review. Well, why? Mm -hmm. We, you know, leading without authority teaches you that it's the team you're working with that should be giving your performance mm -hmm. feedback. I don't care about what, you know, and by the way, as you move into holocratic ways of working, the teams set compensation for each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Tony Shea Award recognized one company last year called the ET Group. Um, that is, if you go to thetonysheaaward.com, you can see the winners last year. And one of them is a holocratic company that sets it, uh, where the teams set their own compensation plans. Nice. Right? Yeah. And this is the kind of things we're moving into. And, and Rita, I would truly love it if you could, um, if, you, if you would want to come. By well, the let way, me the, find out. Let me see the yeah. 
I'll plug an event um, as well, which yeah. is the 23rd and 24th of September. So right after yours, um, a group of people called the World Agile Forum, World Agility Forum, are coming together um, for a couple of days to talk about these issues. Like, what does it mean to be agile? How do we make change happen? And I'm going to be leading a session together with someone who's implemented agile working at Lego which I think is going to be absolutely fascinating. So that's uh, wow. September 23rd, 24th. In, I love that. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, what we're going to do um, is um, we're just maybe a little bait on it. In addition to having a beautiful dinner with this amazing souls on the night of the 15th and all the hard work we're going to be doing on the 16th, Tony invented something called Life is Beautiful, which is now owned by Rolling Stone. It's an amazing concert. <laughs> and it's one of the great concert venues like Coachella, et cetera all of us get free tickets and we're all going as a group to that on Friday night. So fun. Um, I, do hope, I do hope you show up. You'll have a lot of fun and I'd love <laughs> to be a featured spot to think about this. Uh, great. As well. right. great, great. So in um, terms of like maybe follow-up, I mean, does, yeah. if anybody is interested in these ideas, mm-hmm. go to, uh, you know, follow me on social, right? And, and that's where you'll, my, my LinkedIn is where we post so much of what we're working on. Um, competing in the new world of work is the is the consummate book where a lot of these principles have been to. So I look forward to you getting that. And Absolutely. then finally, I'd, I'd say, like I said, the Tony Shea Award. We talked about that mm-hmm. as a way to to get engaged. Um, and there was one other thing I wanted to move people toward. Oh, I've got a wonderful article coming out in HBR Magazine this month that is all focused on how all of this applies to executive teams and executive team functionality. So I'm excited about that piece as well, which will be on LinkedIn if you follow me there. That's great. Well, I don't want to hold you beyond your time. So Keith Ferrazzi, thank you so much for an enlightening hour. Um, I'm going to check my calendar for September and maybe you check yours for the end of September. (laughs) I would really enjoy that. Where's your event going to be? Oh, in Lisbon in Portugal. Okay, got it. And mine's a joke, so maybe a little easier to get to. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay. Thank you so much and appreciate your audience. Have a great weekend, everyone. Bye.